Is the United States planning a war on Iran? Will Turkey soon be leaving NATO, and how would that affect America's war plans in the Middle East region? What are the factors influencing Canadian hostility toward the Islamic Republic? How powerfully could Iran retaliate against a U.S. military strike? Who is behind the recent attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and how is that event likely to shake up both Washington and lead to a major powers confrontation? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine some of the background behind the current tensions flaring up between the United States and Iran and assess whether another Gulf War is on the table. We hear from Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the Center for Research on Globalization about his reasons for suggesting a war with Iran is definitely not on the table. Later in the show, Canadian foreign policy critic Eve Engler explains what belies Canadian enmity toward Iran. Finally, Paris-based geopolitical analyst Pepe Escobar shares information indicating that White House officials are trying to avoid a war with Iran and what he reads into the Thursday tanker attacks that the Trump administration is blaming on Iran. On this week's program, provocations in the Gulf of Oman. Will John Bolton get his war on Iran? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 14th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The speech is, in short, a recognition that the Trump administration sees perpetual war on the horizon, a viewpoint that is particularly alarming as one can quite easily make the case that the United States is not seriously threatened at all by anyone on Pence's enemies list and is therefore the aggressor. China is a regional power. Russia does not have the resources or will to reestablish the Soviet Union. And North Korea has only limited capability to attack anyone even if it should choose to do so. Islamic terrorism is largely a creation of the United States in the first place and maintains its potency by the adverse impact of the continued U.S. presence in Muslim lands. And the suggestion that Venezuela and or Cuba might be a threat to America is, quite frankly, laughable. If Mike Pence is seriously interested in looking around to see who has been most interested in starting new wars, he should look to gentlemen named... Bush and Obama, not to mention his own colleagues, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. That comes from the article, Pence Goes to War, America Will Be Fighting Forever, by Philip Giraldi, posted June 13th, originally published at Strategic Culture Foundation. The military calls the new internment camp a, quote, temporary emergency influx shelter, unquote, a dystopian the echo of the U.S. Army War Relocation Authority's decision to label Japanese internment camps relocation centers. 
Unlike the internees during the Second World War, the new internees will be isolated from their parents and denied basic visitation rights. They will also not be provided with education or recreation during their detention. While Japanese internees famously organized their own baseball leagues to lessen the isolation and boredom of their illegal detention, the Trump administration has refused to allow immigrant children outdoors to play soccer at today's internment camps. The decision underscores that no democratic rights, no matter how basic, can be defended by the Democratic Party. That comes from the article... U.S. to jail 1,400 immigrant children at WW2 Japanese internment site by Eric London, posted June 13th, originally published at World Socialist website. Although Roma are no longer victims of genocide, they still face high levels of discrimination, abuse, and violence. In Hungary in 2009, a Roma man with his five-year-old son were shot and killed while fleeing their home, which was set on fire by attackers. In March 2019, in Paris, a series of vigilante attacks were sparked by false reports of attempted kidnappings. A violent attack last summer on a Roma encampment outside of the city of Lviv in Ukraine, left one dead and four others injured, including a young boy and a pregnant woman. The situation is not improving, even though for many years the EU has focused action on preventing Roma discrimination. That comes from the article, Insidious Discrimination Against the Roma is Europe's Shame, by Professor Alon Benmir and Arbana Zara, posted June 13th. Several of the organizations participating are focused on preventing the erosion of support for Israel among Democratic voters. Recent polls show that the large majority of progressive Americans now support Palestinian human rights. Many of the meeting participants, both senators and Jewish leaders, are particularly known for their pro-Israel work. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer calls himself a guardian of Israel. The meeting does not seem to have been announced publicly ahead of time, and staffers at Senate offices contacted for this article were not aware of it. That comes from the article, U.S. Senators Meet with Jewish Leaders in Semi-Secret Annual Event, by Allison Weir, posted June 12th, originally published on the site for the group If Americans Knew. NATO constitutes a formidable military force composed of 29 member states, which is largely controlled by the Pentagon. It is a military coalition and an instrument of modern warfare. It constitutes a threat to global security and world peace. Divisions within the Atlantic Alliance could take the form of one or more member states deciding to exit NATO. Inevitably, a NATO exit movement would weaken the unfolding consensus imposed by our governments, which at this juncture in our history consists in threatening to wage a preemptive war against the Russian Federation. That comes from a recent introduction to a March 2019 article under the headline, Towards NATO Exit, Shift in the Structure of Military Coalitions, Turkey's Alliance with Russia, China, and Iran, by Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted June 12th. It might sound a bit convoluted at first, listen, but the fact of the matter is that Trump's weaponization of sanctions as America's reinvigorated form of economic warfare is highly selective and based on double standards. So it's very possible that while his administration might sanction Russian and Chinese firms operating in Iran, they'll probably turn a blind eye to Japanese ones doing the same. 
This would give Japanese companies a competitive advantage over Russia and China's because they wouldn't have to fear the potential isolation that would accompany primary and secondary sanctions. As such, Japan could help expand the incipient influence of the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor trans-regional initiative in Iran that it's jointly constructing with India all throughout the Indo-Pacific, thereby laying the basis for countering China's Belt and Road Initiative. This competitive connectivity is at the core of the new Cold War, but it's still a far ways off from posing a tangible threat to China's interest. Nevertheless, The ground is already being built for this to become a long-term challenge to China if one considers the selective application of the U.S. sanctions regime, both primary and secondary, and the geostrategic importance of the greater Indian Ocean region in which this competition is poised to play out. That comes from the article, Japan's Prime Minister Abe is Trump's informal ambassador to Iran, but he wants more than to mediate. By Andrew Koribko, posted June 12th. The NYT posting pictures of illegible, nearly fully redacted pages and claiming it is evidence comes across as self-inflicted satire. U.S. government and corporate foundation-funded fronts like Human Rights Watch repeating these dubious accusations and outright lies also indefinitely cripple their own credibility. However dubious, ongoing propaganda still seeks to, at the very least, hamper and slow down Syrian security operations. The retaking of Idlib and the destruction of al-Qaeda's last significant base of operations in the country is key to stabilizing the region. As the U.S. continues positioning itself for war with nearby Iran, a festering terrorist foothold like Idlib would serve as a serious liability for Iranian efforts to defend itself at home while dealing with a serious, sudden offensive launched out of Idlib against its Syrian allies. That comes from the article, The Last Bastion of Al-Qaeda in Syria, U.S. Propaganda Blitz Ahead of Idlib's Liberation, by Tony Cardellucci, posted June 12th, originally published at New Eastern Outlook. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In recent weeks, the White House and administration officials Mike Pompeo and John Bolton have been making provocative gestures toward Iran. They named the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a terrorist organization. They moved the USS Lincoln Strike Carrier Group to the Middle East, ostensibly to send Iran a clear and unmistakable message. Also, Trump has been sending provocative tweets, including one which says, quote, If Iran wants to fight, that will be the end of Iran. Iran was mentioned by former President George W. Bush alongside Iraq and North Korea as part of the axis of evil. Of course, there have been a lot of changes over the past 17 years, mitigating the possibility of a war with Iran, or so argues my next guest. Professor Michel Chosodovsky is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa and the award-winning author of 11 books, including his most recent, America's Long War Against Humanity. 
He's also the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization and editor of Global Research. Thanks again for joining us, Professor Chelsidovsky. Delighted to be on the program. My understanding is you don't believe a war in Iran is likely, in, in spite of a lot of the, the buzz to the contrary. And, and you present this as owing to shifts in military alliances, most notably with Turkey, in your words, sleeping with the enemy. Could you talk about the importance of Turkey in any successful military operation against the Islamic Republic? Well, I think that um, the national security advisors could very easily launch what they call a bloody nose operation. Uh, which might be uh, a tactical nuclear weapon against particular targets in Iran. That is a distinct possibility. But from a geopolitical standpoint and um, from a logistical standpoint, a conventional war with Iran at this stage is virtually impossible. That does not mean that they can't undertake other forms of, of warfare economic warfare, um, interventions of different forms, uh, the use of other um, weapons of mass destruction, including climatic warfare, biological warfare, and so on. Um, why is it impossible for them to wage a conventional war against Iran at this particular juncture? Because their main allies, which have borders with Iran, are sleeping with the enemy. And I'm talking about Turkey. And Turkey now um, is um, allied with Russia. Uh, it will be acquiring the, the Russian air defense system, the S-400. And it also has a good relationship with, uh, with Iran. And consequently, uh, Turkey as a NATO, NATO heavyweight cannot be inside NATO and at the same time sleeping with, with a military target of NATO, namely Iran. So that, that's, that's, that's the major contradiction, but there are many other dimensions. Pakistan is no longer an ally of the, of the United States. Pakistan now is aligned with, with the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and, and with China. And, um, and in other words, actions against Iran uh, via Pakistan are an impossibility. Iraq um, has good relations with Iran, and um, they have signified to, um, to Washington that they are not going to collaborate in any kind of military adventure directed against the, the neighboring state. So that's, that's the background, but it's a very complex background because the structures of alliances have shifted dramatically against the United States. Could you speak to, uh, you know, precisely, because Turkey is a major regional power, and I believe they had previously had uh, arrangements, uh, uh, you know, alliance with Israel, in addition to the United States uh, via NATO. So with Turkey, as you say, sleeping with the enemy, purchasing these uh, Russia, this Russian uh, anti-missile uh, SU-400 system, uh, what, what, uh, what would be the uh, – like how, how would Turkey uh, – Turkey's noncompliance uh, 
undermine Iran? Is it about a question of uh, the presence of mi a military base for U.S. Uh, fueling its weaponry and operations? Or what, what is the, the critical uh, logistical element that Turkey provides? Well, there are still military bases in Turkey, and, and there are U.S. forces which are using those bases. Um, but we must understand that first, once Turkey enters into a military cooperation agreement for, which is geared towards the use of the S-400, it then withdraws itself from the NATO air defense system. The, the NATO air defense system includes the United States, NATO, and Israel, and it's a very co coherent and coordinated system. And so you can't, uh, you, you can't p acquire the S-400 and continue to, um, to be a member of NATO. It's an impossibility because the use of the S-400 inevitably involves military cooperation. Uh, you know, it's a bit like uh, having a BMW and you have to go to the service station. So the, 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 the Russian uh, advisors will come, they will assist their counterparts, and so on and so forth. And what that means is the moment uh, Turkey acquires the S-400, and that's, that's almost now, uh, they are de facto no longer a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And that should be understood. And in the last couple of weeks, they have made that clear. They are saying we are uh, envisaging the possibility of withdrawing from NATO. Now, I'm not saying that that will happen or it will happen immediately. Uh, and I don't think it's in the interest of the United States to allow that to happen. But so the rhetoric prevails. But from, uh, from a military standpoint, you cannot have Turkey with an S-400 system in collaboration with Russia. And at the same time, they stay they stay privy to all the air defense systems of the Western Military Alliance, and they integrate that. Impossible. Okay? Mm. Uh, in, in, in terms of modern warfare, that that, that's not possible. And there are a number of other countries which, are, uh, which, are, uh, which have alliances with the United States which are now slated to purchase the S-400. Even Saudi Arabia at one point said they wanted to purchase the S-400. Now, so the, the, that kind of uh, process is ongoing, and we should understand also that the structure of alliances is very much uh, related to the to the defense industry, to the you know to the production of weapon systems, and if one ally of the United States shift and starts buying from the enemy, uh, the whole, this, of course, also has repercussions. And that's not limited, of course, it's not limited to Turkey. As I, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia is now contemplating the possibility of buying weapons from Russia, which would immediately jeopardize their bilateral military uh, agreements with the United States.
Well, there's also something called the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CATSA, which allows U.S. sanctions on otherwise neutral or even allied countries who purchase weapons from nations that are directly sanctioned by Washington, i.e. Russia, uh, Iran, and uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So, uh, you know, if if Turkey is uh, proceeding with the uh, the purchase of this uh, Russian weapon system, then we're talking sanctions. And, of course, in, in, Turkey could not conceivably continue on as a NATO ally. So, you know, what, 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 what does this mean for Turkey? Are, they, are we looking at an economic warfare against them? Well, it's, it's very hard to predict what might happen. Uh, I think that in the last two or three weeks, um, both, I think both Bolton and Pompeo have made statements in this regard that, that if, um, oh, and Mike Pence as well, that, that if Turkey goes along with the S-400, there are going to be consequences, and then they will apply sanctions and so on. That, I think that's a distinct possibility. But the sanctions regime is falling flat now because, um, you know, you have China. And um, now Turkey is, um, is, uh, is also a partner country to the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which, which is actually meeting this week in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and, uh, you know, the, even India, well, India is a staunch ally of, of the United States, but it is also a member of the SCO. And so its allegiances are um, the cross-cutting allegiances. Uh, and I should mention that even Israel has has a, an unofficial uh, 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 cross-cutting coalition tacit alliance with Russia because Netanyahu and Putin have a personal relationship going back several years. All these things are crucial, and all these things ultimately weaken U.S. hegemonic. Uh, uh, power in the Middle East. I should mention there's another dimension, which is unspoken, is that the proxies of of the United States and Turkey, respectively, are fighting one another in northern Syria. They're fighting, and why? Because uh, the United States wants to install um, uh, a Kurdish state in both Syria and Iraq, and this was decided many, many years ago. And, uh, and they also want to encroach upon Turkey's territory so that this would in, include a Kurdish state uh, which would encroach on, on Turkish uh, sovereignty. Now, I'm not making any, any, you know, any judgments on, on this project, but in, in effect, uh, the United States wants to establish a proxy state. Um, and at the same time, Turkey wants to expand its territory in, in northern Syria, and so they're clashing militarily, two members of NATO fighting one another. Hmm. So that's an impo- again, that's an impossibility. And I don't see any, you know, they, they discuss behind closed doors and they try to, to agree on certain things, but ultimately they're fighting one another. Well, could I get you then to uh, possibly speculate uh, what, what is behind the, uh, the, the rhetoric, the, the, the moving of the USS Lincoln uh, Battle Carrier Group, the, uh, the, the joint operations that are, are taking place uh, offshore, the, because there seems to be the specter of something involving Iran, but uh, 
you know, is this just sending Israel some sort of a message, or or what is the what is the likely agenda with regard to this uh, ramping up of rhetoric and and so on? Well, first of all, th this is uh, sort of uh, what we might call a modern form of gunboat diplomacy or missile diplomacy, or you know, uh, aircraft carrier diplomacy. It it's there to to uh, it up, it doesn't necessarily result in a military action, but it's there to intimidate. But, uh, and it's not it's it's not the first time that they do that. Uh, and I I'm going if we go back to uh, 10 15 years ago, there were several incidents of, of, of a similar nature, um, uh, active plans to invade uh, Iran go back to 2003. In the wake of the of the war in Iraq, Donald Rumsfeld had actually said, "Yes, we're preparing a blitzkrieg, a similar type of blitzkrieg against Iraq, uh, Iran." Um, Bolton was pushing for that as well back then. Yes, but the circumstances have changed dramatically because they don't have a they they've nowhere to. Their ground forces. They can't wage a blitzkrieg without having, uh, you know, having similar conditions which existed when they invaded Iraq in 2003. Those don't exist anymore. So that the, they, they are, they are sort of, in a sense, that they are sending in their aircraft carriers and and having war games right off the coastline of um, of um, Iran. That's, in, in a sense, it's very similar to what they've been doing in, on the Korean Peninsula for, you know, almost half a, half a century. It's intimidation, and then they think that they can actually start having talks. And, that, and they have, in fact, intimated they want to have talks with, with Iran. And now Prime Minister Abe is off to, uh, to Tehran, and he is designated as the Japanese Prime Minister, uh, um, uh, he's des designated as, uh, you know, as the potential go-between in, in negotiations with uh, uh, with Iran. So that diplomacy is still on the table, but I think what they want to do is to put Iran in such a sit in a situation where they they actually cave into economic demands and so on, and ultimately maybe regime change is what. What what is what is uh, being sought, um, and that's the, that's still a distinct possibility because there's also very there's a lot of um, social discontent in Iran, uh, particularly with with regard to the impacts of economic policies on on the standard of living. Mm, so possibly a, a colored revolution. Well, possibly a color revolution. That's something which is contemplated. Uh, there's also the, the there's also secessionist uh, movements. Uh, uh, the 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 Balochistan uh, secessionists in both uh, Pakistan and Iran. Uh, that's something. There's uh, support to the to the Mujahideen People's Organization of, of Iran, which is a terrorist organization. All that, of course, is ongoing. It has been ongoing. Um, so I, I say that uh, a conventional theater 
type war against Iran right now doesn't seem uh, a pos- doesn't seem possible. But again, we are dealing with an administration, U.S. administration, which is very unpredictable in in terms of its uh, you know its, its options which they formulate. But when they get to the military level, the, the, the military command structures will tell them, no, we can't do that. doesn't make sense. We can't do it. Uh, Pompeo and Bolton may uh, wish to do certain things, but uh, then the military will tell them, no, we can't. Uh, so they're opting for, <laughs> I think they're opting for a very dangerous course, which uh, could lead to... Uh, the possibility of a bloody nose operation, which is a sort of standalone, uh, um, you know, it's a standalone operation against a country you don't like, um, and it, but that could lead to escalation. That's there's no question about. Okay. Well, Professor Chostodovsky, I think we'll close it there. But I, I want to thank you once again for uh, adding your. Uh, uh, knowledge and insights into this uh, these uh, very dynamic events. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Professor Michel Chosodovsky, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa, and the founder and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. During the 2015 Canadian federal election campaign, Trudeau, the Justin Trudeau Liberals had committed to restoring diplomatic relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran, but as we head into the next federal elections, there's been little progress on this front. In the summer of 2018, The government approved a motion by the opposition conservatives to have the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps designated a terrorist organization, although that resolution has not yet been implemented. What are the factors influencing Canada's Iran policy? Joining us to discuss this subject is Eve Engler. He's a prolific author, an activist, and a prominent critic of Canadian foreign policy. Eve Engler, thanks once again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is Canada's following basically a Me Too policy vis-a-vis Iran, or is Canada, as with the Global South, uh, Canada following an independent uh, course? Um, I would say it's mostly a Me Too policy. Uh, Canada was uh, quite sympathetic uh, to the Shah. Uh, Canada actually, Canadian officials put a small role in the overthrow of uh, uh, Mossadegh in uh, '53. That was the British and the CIA. Uh, led operation. Canadian diplomats were uh, were sympathetic uh, to that to that uh, uh, overthrow of Iranian uh, democracy then, um, and uh, there was. Uh, I don't think Canadian policy hasn't been as hard line um, after the Iranian Revolution uh, as the American policy, but it has generally um, packed with uh, with U.S. policy and in. In you know the recent years, certainly last uh, decade, um, Canada has been uh, right at the forefront of uh, taking hostile positions uh, with Iran and, and the Harper government. I refer to it as their their low level war on Iran. Um, through much of the Harper government's uh, regime, they took um, took very uh, aggressive uh, rhetorical positions and um, diplomatic positions in terms of severing uh, diplomatic relations in 2012 and 
terms of listing Iran as a state sponsor of terror. I think there's uh, only Iran and Syria, the only two countries that are uh, listed in that way by Canada. Um, and uh, Trudeau uh, seemed to uh, suggest that he was going to pursue a different course of action, but uh, has largely uh, um, um, continued, uh, has, has not changed the, the thrust of uh, the Harper government's policy, had, had reduced the sort of uh, rhetorical attacks against Iran, but even that seems to have uh, have changed in, in in recent months, and now they're beginning to uh, to uh, to attack Iran uh, uh, rhetorically over the past year. So, who then, in your view, are the key players, both foreign and domestic, that are are lobbying and pressuring the Trudeau government to sanction Iran, uh, including the uh, the decision to uh, label the Revolutionary Guard uh, Islam's uh, military as a terrorist organization? Yeah, I mean, I think it fits within a pro-U.S. Uh, policy vis-a-vis the Middle East. Uh, that's uh, the big picture. Uh, within that, it's all, obviously also a pro-Israel policy uh, that, uh, that Canada's uh, pursuing. Uh, and, uh, you know, within Canada, one of the most uh, active uh, anti-Iranian activists is Erwin uh, Kotler, a former liberal um, a minister who is a staunch uh, supporter of Israel. He organized a, uh, a press conference uh, um, a couple weeks ago where he got actually uh, uh, all, an all-party uh, press conference in, in Ottawa to, uh, to call for sanctions on Iran, uh, to sanction 19 Iranian officials to to list um, the uh, Revolutionary Guard as a, as a, a terrorist organization. Um, and uh, um, he, Collar is the one who, uh, who um, set up the uh, so-called Iran Accountability Week about a, about a decade ago and continues to be involved in that. Um, so, so it's a mix of Canada being uh, tied into uh, a pro-U.S. empire policy in general, um, uh, in the Middle East specifically, uh, uh, that's also tied into a pro a pro-Israel policy, um, and uh, and then there's a um, um, elements of the uh, of the Israel lobby in Canada that are very much um, a supportive of, of a more hardline uh, position vis-a-vis Iran, because they I think there's many reasons for that. Partly because um, the more we talk about Iran. Um, the less there is talk about Palestine, but I think that Iran does put um, um, a little bit of a check on uh, on Israeli power in the region via its support for Hezbollah, um, notably uh, via its small level of support uh, um, for Hamas. I think that's, that's dwindled. Um, um, and uh, unlike most of the rest of the region, you know, the Saudi monarchy, uh, the Saudi monarchy and the other Gulf monarchies, um, that at this point have become basically allies with Israel. Iran is is, uh, is um, still um, sort of put somewhat of a check on on Israeli power. Now the uh, there's an Iranian uh, an Iran an Iran analyst based in Washington named Ali Afwane, and uh, just uh, reading a pro- quote from him with regard to this. Uh, apparent deterioration in Tehran Ottawa relations saying that uh, w- with regard to the IRGC uh that the IRGC controls a large part of Iran's economy passing a terrorist designation prohibits Canadian companies from doing business with some of the most important economic actors 
in Iran, uh, Mr. Alphen has said. So I, 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 it suggests that there's some complexities for the, the Canadian capitalist class, because on the one hand, I mean, they were supportive of the JCPOA until uh, Trump decided to, to pull out of that. But at the same time, you know, so there, there, there are some economic interests in, uh, in, in building some, uh, you know, in, in not going with that IRGC uh, designation as a terrorist entity, even though you've got these other players, you know, the Israel and, you know, you know groups like B'nai B'rith and, and uh, the FDD, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, is all trying to, uh, you know, encourage more hostility toward Iran. But uh, what would you say, then, is the uh, maybe the critical factor in uh, the... Uh, Canada not going ahead or not fully implementing that terrorist designation? Is it just the... Uh, um... Well, I, I agree that, that economic considerations would be part of it. I also think that there's a, an element of hostility in Europe um, uh, among Canadian allies in Europe um, towards uh, um, the Trump administration's breaking of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and uh, so that's you know, part of it, obviously, we see just with the uh, the Japanese uh, prime minister visiting uh, Iran um, uh, today, yesterday, uh, the that there's even, you know, Japan and, and some other American allies. Um, Japan's talking about continuing to buy oil from Iran. So, so there's other, you know, generally U.S. allies that uh, um, are not on board with what is viewed as a very uh, extreme American position in terms of one, ending the Iran nuclear deal, and two, um, listing uh, the Revolutionary Guard as a as a, as a terrorist uh, organization, and so I think that's part of uh, part of the check on on Canada's policy with regards to economic relations. In, in theory, I think you could have you know a decent uh, level of or economic relations between Canada and Iran. Iran's a very big country. Um, geographically, it's fairly distant, so it's never going to be a major Canadian um, uh, economic uh, partner, though there is a fairly significant um, Iranian-Canadian uh, community that theoretically could uh, you know, sort of have um, significant uh, business relations within Iran. But I think that um, the part of why the Harper government was able to uh, sever diplomatic relations um, List Iran as a state sponsor of terror sanctions is because there actually aren't that many um, business relations between Canada and Iran. Um, so much of what a Canadian embassy does is advance Canadian business relations in the country, and uh, and because there have been there's been so many years of hostility towards Iran that you know, companies have been uh, fearful of uh, of of, uh, of uh, you know, setting up shop in Iran. Um, so yes, in theory, um, there are some business interests that would uh, do see Iran as a, as a, you know, a potential uh, market and place to make some money. Um, but in practice, there actually aren't uh, that many um, of those relations, which obviously gives the the, uh, the more sort of hostile forces, the uh, Foundation of Defense of Democracy, the uh, and others, um, you know, more sort of leeway to be aggressive in their policy because there isn't really that much of a pushback from, from uh, you know, entrenched uh, um, corporate or capitalist uh, uh, interests vis-à-vis uh, Iran. And, uh, and on an increasingly cynical note, the uh, idea that uh, having Iran as a regional uh, boogeyman 
can uh, be lucrative for uh, Canadian arms sales to other, uh, you know, Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia. Do you see that as being an ingredient in the in the mix of uh, Canada-Iran policy? Well, certainly, alliance with the, the, the Saudi Arabia and UAE. Um, how the Saudi Arabia and UAE justify their war uh, in Yemen is by claiming that. That uh, and the U.S. for that matter, claiming that uh, that you know the Houthis are backed by Iran. Um, so yes, the the boogeyman um, uh, helps in uh, in Canada delivering you know billions and billions of dollars of weaponry to to, uh, to Saudi Arabia, not just in terms of uh, light armored vehicles that get a, have gotten a whole lot of attention, but also tens and tens of millions of dollars of of Canadian uh, uh, rifles uh, that keep popping up in Yemen, um, um, that Anthony Fenton has done an amazing job in terms of uh, documenting in incredible detail just the, the flow of Canadian weaponry into, uh, into Yemen um, in the Saudi-backed forces in, in, in Yemen. Um, and so uh, there's no doubt that part of uh, the anti-Iran uh, policy is, um, first of all, tied into Canada being... Uh, um, allied with uh, Saudi Arabia, but also uh, this uh, fairly substantive uh, economic relationship in terms of Canada delivering uh, billions of dollars every year of, uh, of weaponry to uh, to the Saudi monarchy. Mm. So, how do you see Canadian policy evolving uh, as as we go into the next election and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I, I, because we have a situation where um, the Conservatives. Uh, were the you know, most likely party to defeat uh, the Liberals um, because they're even more hardline on Iran. Um, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a major shift. Also, because the NDP um, has uh, has has sort of said a bit of they've they've uh, you know they've been critical of Trump's uh, aggressive policy, but for the most part, they have um, not been willing to criticize. Uh, the Trudeau government for not restarting diplomatic relations uh, for you know, withdrawing. That's Iran. Canada's NDP being Canada's left option. Social, Social Democratic uh, yeah. Party. They haven't. They haven't really um, been in any way willing to sort of uh, take the issue on in terms of criticizing uh, the uh, the Liberals um, um, on on the issue. And like I said, uh, NDP MPs have uh, have attended the recent. Uh, uh, press conference calling for uh, uh, greater sanctions on Iran um, and calling for a listing of the, the Revolutionary Guard as a, as a terrorist uh, uh, organization. So that's not the official policy of the NDP, as I understand it. But but there's clearly elements of the party that are that are supportive of that. So I, I think at this point the realistic uh, 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 scenario is you know how how crazy is uh, is the uh, is the Trump administration? If the Trump administration is willing to go all the way to uh, to war, um, which I, I would imagine is unlikely because Iran is, a, is you know, not Iraq; it's a much more powerful country. Um, the Trudeau government, uh, and/or if there's a conservative government, will mostly kind of follow along. Probably won't participate, but will will do um, you know continue with the rhetorical uh, statements that that enable um, uh, U.S. policy and. And you know, continue with this policy of no diplomatic relations. Continue with the policies that sort of enable this aggressive U.S. policy, um, but but we don't don't go to the point of actually um, militarily uh, supporting it. Though though 
I should also mention there's been Canadian naval vessels patrolling off the coast of Iran alongside American and other uh, NATO forces uh, repeatedly over the past uh, uh, decade or so. Um, so that's a you know, small Canadian contribution to, to ramping up tensions in the region. Um, but I would, I, would, uh, I would presume what we're going to mostly see is a sort of continuation of, of uh, current policy, probably not reaching to any sort of uh, direct Canadian military support. Um, but it's very unlikely that uh, we'll see a, a particularly good shift uh, away from this uh, hostility towards Iran. Eve Angler, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Thanks a lot for having me. We've been speaking with Eve Angler, the author and activist and prominent critic of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, he has, his website is eveangler.com. He's also a frequent contributor to the Global Research website. On Thursday, June 12th, two tankers in the Gulf of Oman near the strategic waterway known as the Strait of Hormuz were attacked. This news comes following a week in which the Trump administration has been preparing to climb, has been appearing to climb down from their hostile Iran stance with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying his country was prepared to talk with Tehran with no preconditions. Pepe Escobar broke a story recently indicating the Islamic Republic has a not-so-secret weapon to use in retaliation if the U.S. launches an offensive against them, and the Trump administration knows it. Pepe is a noted geopolitical analyst. We reached him in Paris. I want to refer to a recent article you mentioned, uh, a devastated hammer that Iran can use against the United States in the event of an overt attack, uh, and the U.S. knows it. What have your sources disclosed about the Strait of Hormuz and Iran's capacity to fight back against an attack? Exactly. Uh, look, uh, I think the last article I published about it was uh, after the Bilderberg meetings, in fact, because um, I was asked to investigate about at least some of the stuff they were discussing inside Bilderberg. I had a good banking source, in fact. They did not disclose much. You, you know, you know very well at Global Research how Bilderberg works. But Chatham House rules. <laughs> exactly, you betcha. But uh, I got some interesting information about uh, how they were seeing uh, the results of the European parliamentary elections as a sort of victory, because now everyone in Europe is more or less uh, uh, the center left and the center right and the greens are more or less on the same page for from the point of view of by of Bilderbergers, that was a victory. But then I was asking, look, I'm sure they discuss about China, Iran and all that. And my source would say, look, I cannot talk about this or for obvious reasons. But then I got uh, information from someone who's above Bilderberg, if you can put it this way. This is one of my best sources for years, in fact. American, but the only thing I can say is American. It's not European. It's not Asian. And he told me, look, uh, I know what they discussed about Iran because uh, the key information is actually on Trump's desk. We all know that Trump doesn't read anything, but this information came supported by Wall Street guys. And I'm talking about the big guys. Blackstone, Summer Redstone, uh, JP, uh, Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs people, including Goldman Sachs projections, you name it. So 
Trump must have seen it at least, or at least somebody must have uh, read it to him in uh, two or three minutes, you know. And I had written about this before. Now more, the, the studies are more detailed. It's about if, essentially, if the Strait of Hormuz is shut down, whatever the reason, it could be a false flag, like most probably what happened yesterday with the two tankers, the Norwegian tanker and the Japanese tanker, transporting petrochemical products back to Asia, was not in the Strait of Hormuz, was uh, more on the open sea in the Gulf of Oman. If it was in the, in the uh, Strait of Hormuz, it would be much, much worse than what happened yesterday. So the projections, including Goldman Sachs projections, is if this happens and the strait is closed, whatever the reason, because mostly uh, insurers would not risk insuring any vessel leaving uh, the Persian Gulf through the Strait of Hormuz and, uh, and then uh, further afield, the price of uh, the barrel of oil in less than 24 hours will be over 100. After one day or two, 200. After a week, 500. And there are some projections that after a while will even reach 1,000. And more than that, the implosion of casino capitalism as we know it, especially because of the... And then we have different numbers. The derivatives, especially oil derivatives and other derivatives as well. Uh, there are all sorts of numbers concerning how many derivatives are out there. From uh, $500 billion, which is the official bank of international settlements figure, to $2.5 quadrillion, in fact. So uh, it gets very complicated. I had to fight with, uh, with Asia Times to say, look, you should publish all the figures. And they prefer to go for the lowest estimate. And one of my sources told me, no, this is the Swiss bankers know this figure, uh, implying more or less his source was uh, from the Bank of International Settlements, and he's adamant that it's $2.5 quadrillion. So this means that the whole uh, Western economy would collapse in a matter of uh, <laughs> literally nanoseconds. So this was in my, in my story for Asia Times. I, I also wrote about this for Consortium News. And more, and for the past months or so, I discussed this with um, Iranians, but not directly with uh, revolutionary guards, people who have access to IRGC information. And obviously, IRGC are very secretive. They know and they do have uh, the necessary means to shut down the strait, which way, whatever, whichever way they want it. And that's why I got from Iranian sources this time, they are so sure that the Americans won't try anything stupid because the Pentagon knows what Iran is capable militarily. They know about all those missiles lining up the northern shore of, uh, of the Persian Gulf on the Iranian side, pointed at everything that moves uh, uh, in the Strait of Hormuz and also in the uh, Gulf of Oman. Uh, and that was the main reason that Trump wants to talk. And this was discussed at Bilderberg, everything that I'm telling you. Why? Because Mike Pompeo at the last minute scheduled that stop in Switzerland, especially in Bern, to talk to the president of Switzerland. But he also talked to people at Bilderberg afterwards, because Bilderberg was in Montreux, not very far. He went to Montreux as well. 
and they talk, and I'm sure they talk, obviously, no leaks whatsoever about it, but obviously Pompeo had to talk, especially with Europeans who were terrified about this, and some Europeans knew about this information, because this information was circulated by bankers to European bankers as well, Bilderberg, everything connected. So this was the reason why Pompeo actually went to Switzerland at that time. This was an unscheduled stop. We have to remember this all the time. So, uh, but still we have the major problem on the table, which uh, resurfaced yesterday. Are the neocons around Trump playing their last card to force him to do anything on a military side against Iran? Because if it's, I would say we have we don't we still don't have a mega smoking gun, but it's more or less sure that what happened yesterday was a false flag. We still don't know exactly how it worked. But if that's the case and pro and, and Trump saying today, no, if <laughs> if they close the Strait of Hormuz, it's not going to be for long, which is a diversionist tactic. He know he should know by now what that would mean in terms of a disaster for the global economy. So now we're, we, we've, we are way beyond this already. We are in a horrible stage where the United States has spent itself into a corner saying, Pompeo saying on the record that we run the responsible without examining any evidence at all. Today, very, very important, today, earlier today, since yesterday and earlier today, in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, guess who was in the same room? Putin, Modi, Xi, Imran Khan, and as an observer, Rouhani, president of Iran. And obviously they were discussing Iran. It was not on the final statement because Iranian was observer to the SCO. But they discussed, as, as far as from my sources told me, uh, it hasn't leaked a lot so far, but they did discuss Iran. And Rouhani made a solemn promise which was brilliant in terms of in geoeconomic terms to all SEO member nations. You're going to have the your companies from any one of you, uh, Iran, uh, sorry, uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Russia, China, this, all the Central Asians, all of your companies that invest in the Iranian market are going to have the best possible conditions uh, anywhere. So there's going to be a lot of foreign investment from the SEO companies, from uh, SEO member nations in the Iranian economy. So, uh, so Iran on a diplomatic side, they're doing very well. On the military side, as far as I know, from my Iranian sources who, who know more or less in detail what the IRGC is doing, they tell me, look, they don't care anymore, whatever the Americans say. And this comes straight from the top, from Ayatollah Khamenei when he says that it's absolutely pointless to talk with the Americans. And Zarif is saying it in a more diplomatic way to um, Minister of Foreign Relations everywhere and uh, leaders everywhere, including, of course, Putin and Xi. Uh, we are ready for anything that happens. We want diplomacy, of course. But if they ratchet up the pressure, we will ratchet up pressure from our side. Yeah, it's getting to a very, very dangerous uh, stalemate now, Michael. Yeah. I was wondering if you could address a, a point related, I, I guess you could call it to palace intrigue in Washington, because it's been suggested by a fellow, fellow consortium news contributor of yours, John Kiriakou, that yes. John Bolton's days as national security advisor are numbered. Uh, uh, given all the unwelcome provocations he's directing at Iran. At the same time, the United States, Trump, 
presumably doesn't want to have an unwinnable war on the eve of a major U.S. presidential election campaign, nor does he want to bring down the global capitalist deck of cards. So how, how what options does he have? I mean, how yeah. can Trump avoid escalation with Iran without losing face at this point? Exactly. That's, that's a very good question. John's information is very, very good because it uh, ties with the information that I have from People in New York who do business with Trump, they told me the same thing. Uh, he's absolutely furious, in fact, uh, with the way he was spinning into a corner by Bolton, especially. Pompeo, not so much. Pompeo is expected to go around uh, blasting Iran. But Bolton is actually trying to implement something uh, practical or false flag style on the ground, you know. And now Trump himself is painting himself into a corner. He is a, he's already accused uh, Iran of uh, what, what happened in, uh, in the Gulf of Oman on the record. How is he going to backtrack from that? Of course, now he cannot backtrack without just saying, oh, look, I, I was wrong. <laughs> okay, here's another tweet. I changed my mind. So uh, it, it's um, what we know for sure is that he doesn't want any kind of military scenario because he seems to know what that would imply. Considering the IRGC, their force, uh, what they have, the missiles, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the financial angle, which is the, the derivatives crisis. At the same time, he, they keep ratcheting up the pressure under this, uh, the so-called self-described maximum pressure campaign. And there's no possibility of dialogue because this, uh, what happened yesterday was uh, when uh, uh, Prime Minister Chinzo Abe was talking to Khamenei in Khamenei's office in Tehran, trying to defuse the whole situation. Japan as uh, the intermediary, the messenger between Washington and Tehran. And this thing happens. This is completely crazy. And, and anyone with an IQ, <laughs> you know, higher than 12 can figure out that this doesn't make any sense at all. Why would Iran attack? a Japanese-owned tanker among uh, these two, uh, the minute that their prime minister is talking to the leader of Iran, this is completely absurd, you know, so. And talking to the prime minister on behalf of Trump. On behalf of Trump, exactly, exactly. He had a letter. Uh, he had a letter which pro probably was sent by uh, Team Trump to Ayatollah Khamenei. Khamenei, from the beginning, he said, look, there's, there's nothing to talk about. And, and in fact, it's fantastic. Somebody came up with the two different pictures that uh, Abe had the letter with him in front, in front of the table when he were talking. And after a while, he removed the letter from the table. <laughs> a graphic sign that uh, I mean, he was not ready to read anything written by Team Trump, you know. Well, Pepe, I wish we had more time to discuss this, but uh, I know we've uh, both got to go. But uh, I, I want to thank you for lending your uh, very knowledgeable voice to this critical discussion on uh, breaking events. I, I hope this is helpful for, for, for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we've been speaking with uh, geopolitical analyst Pepe Escobar. He joined us from Paris. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.